Hi, I'm Mike Hatton, and for over 20 years, I've been in a management role that saw me working with other managers from entry level up to and including the C-suite. The experience gained have positioned me to help many other leaders manage the stresses of not having enough time at work, not having enough family time, neglecting their health, and many other challenges magnified by the recent pandemic. I founded Human Cornerstone Facilitations, LLC in 2008. It was based on the need to help managers improve their productivity and that of their team. I would like to show you the roadmap to becoming a great leader by harnessing your team's strengths. Welcome to my show, Cornerstone, where the foundations of leadership begin. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Mike Hatton, and welcome to my show, Cornerstone. I have a very interesting guest today about uh, leadership. We're going to talk to him about sales and everything else. So uh, he served in various roles. He served in uh, vice president roles. He's been board members of company. He's been an international sales director of uh, a company in 23 different companies. And without uh, further ado, let's jump right in. I'd like to introduce Daniel Wagner. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Great. Um, talk a little bit about uh, journey. I always like to talk about where people came from and what they've done. Uh, and mentors is uh, something I believe in strongly. So can you tell me someone that was a tremendous influence on you as far as leadership and a mentor and got you thinking about uh, just a career in business and in sales? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been very fortunate that there are numerous and multiple mentors in my life, um, still in my life today, which is huge. But I think the person who first turned me on to the power that mentoring could deliver uh, was my scoutmaster, my scoutmaster, Tom Savoy in Pennsylvania, where I grew up. Um, he taught us that he was there to be the guardrails and that he served best as a tour guide in our lives. Um, and just like any good tour guide, he points out all the things that you need to see. Um, however, you have to turn your head and look for them. So there was always personal accountability that I was taught from a very early age um, with the support of having a great mentor. And so I attribute a lot of that to Tom. And um, throughout my career, uh, once a year on my Eagle Scout Court of Honor date, I do my best to, to call up Tom and, and tell him again, thank you. That's very interesting. And it's, it's very interesting how people that meet each other have actually come along parallel paths. There's a mentor that's responsible. Uh, I give him credit for everything I've been able to achieve. And uh, he finally stopped me one day and he said, much like you were talking about the uh, tour guide, but mm -hmm. uh, he stopped me and he said, you know, he said, I'm not taking credit for you being successful. All I did was open a door. You're successful because you stepped through it. And he said, and if you know how many doors I opened and the people don't step through, you would realize you need to take credit for what you're on. So anyway, oh, well, a, can I add something story. to that? You can Mike? add anything you want. So that's so funny that you brought that up because recently I was looking at a decision in my career. Two wonderful opportunities presented themselves and um, however, distinctly different, right? So I was evaluating between two very different companies in the medical device uh, space. And so I called a mentor who was my first and last boss uh, a company that I had the pleasure of serving with for about a decade. And he's currently the uh, president and CEO of a company on the Eastern Coast. And I just wanted to pick his brain, right? And so here it was, had the phone call. And at the very end of the call, I wanted to thank him um, for everything that he had contributed along my career. And his words still stay with me today. I think it's the mark of a, a hallmark of a great leader. He said, 
I'm glad you appreciate that. I appreciate your gratitude. Do me a favor. Make sure to do that for somebody else. And that's all that he asked. Isn't that powerful? Mm -hmm. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. Well, as I prepared for the interview um, and uh, looked at some different things you've done, I see that you were privileged to work in um, um, medical device, the medical industry. You worked in phar pharma. Mm -hmm. You worked in uh, biologicals. Uh, you uh, called on specialties from ear, nose, and throat all the way up through and including uh, cardiologists. Yep. So the thing that I saw there were three things that were a recurring theme. And as I coach people and mentor people, the two people that I work with, these things ran in parallel with what I did. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about um, three things. And I'd like to start with um, going from an individ individual contributor to a leader or a team leader. Okay. And I'd like to hear how you did that. And then now that you've risen to uh, the positions that you have, how do you do the same thing to bring your people along? It's a two-part question. But. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the transition from individual contributor to a leader, and, and, a, and I want to define leader real quick, because a leader, one of the biggest hangups that I think I've seen, and I have this personal hangup I had early in my career, which is that um, the title doesn't define a leader. So first and foremost, I think there's a great opportunity as an individual contributor to be a leader in any organization. But defining a leader here is really, I think, three cornerstones. It's someone who has accountability. It's someone who has responsibility. And it's someone who has authority. And when those three things, those three legs of the stool are put together with the right person, I think it's really it's powerful, but it can be really scary. So the transition that you just uh, illustrated, I think, is very important. So personally, in my, in my journey, the transition um, <laughs> kind of came out of nowhere. I was working for a, a very large medical device company, um, tremendous company um, that helps a lot of people around the world. And I was part of a new cohort of college grads who was coming in as all of our first jobs. And it was a program called the Fellows Program. And we were supposed to develop and go through a really tremendous opportunity. And we had the direct line of visibility from our CEO who had piloted this program and brought us on board. And one of the concerns that I raised up was that as the fellows were progressing and graduating, how do we mentor, how do we ensure good mentoring? Um, because it's great that we had this finite period of leadership development, but the reality is we have an entire career um, for this cohort ahead of them. And um, so my, my transition started at that moment when I made that observation, um, because the answer from uh, the executive team at the time was, that's tremendous. Why don't you take on that mentoring? And so I had the great privilege of taking um, people from the next classes coming into this leadership development program and having um, both managerial and leadership responsibilities um, with them in my team. And so um, I think, so being thrust into that, my biggest takeaway is, is really, it's an ask of the managers and leaders. And it was a lesson that I had to learn. And that was, um, you know, we always, certainly today, we're very in touch in the hiring process and in the managerial process of measuring emotional intelligence quotients of the people within our organization. I wanna take that and turn that. I think one of the most important aspects as you look at leadership is your own emotional intelligence for the responsibilities of those in your team.
Um, and so when that's put together, we're, we're emotionally aware of our team and what they're doing. I like to just simplify it and say, it's as simple as my job is to block and tackle. You know, we hire people who are smarter than us, who have different experiences than us, who have more capabilities than us. And a great leader uh, looks at it and has the opportunity to say, hey, I understand the pathway you're on. I'm your biggest cheerleader. Let me block and tackle. And so I look at it as almost like, use NFL terms, a great offensive line. Crazy thing is, a great offensive line never scores a touchdown. However, every touchdown scored is because of that offensive line. And that's leadership. Absolutely. When, when I work with clients, um, it struck me and something that I always said, um, when you said you were told, that's a really great idea. You're, <laughs> you're now in charge of that. We call that being, uh, in, when we coach someone, being voluntold. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's a really great thing. And the other thing about leadership is you said anyone can be a leader and you have to have the three components. Yes, those are all very true. The one that I always added to that was, if I'm working with a leader, I tell them, if you don't lead, a leader will emerge. A leader will always rise to the top and it might not be the person you want to be the leader. It okay. may be, and there's many examples of that. So anyway, that, that's a really great story. Um, let's go to the next thing. Sure, sure, absolutely. You're in the healthcare industry. Like I said, you worked with uh, you know every uh, facet of the healthcare industry. Uh, changes in healthcare that you see today and things for the future and how they're going to impact us. Uh, just, I know that's a very broad uh, yeah, question, yeah. but uh, you want to take that on? Absolutely. Well, I think broad, but extremely timely and pertinent, right? Right. Um, so healthcare industry, and, and look, I lucked out going into the healthcare industry. Um, I graduated from university, a tremendous medical device company moved in literally next door, and I was fortunate enough to become a member of that team. But what I fell in love with instantly is the, the ballet of healthcare, not just in the United States, but, but globally. And so I think one of the, the kind of unspoken or unsung beautiful components in healthcare is this ballet between um, the industry, so the companies that I represent um, and lead sales organizations for, right? So industry, the second is the practitioners themselves, right? So these are uh, MDs, DOs, practitioners of every level, because healthcare is truly an, an entire organization taking care of, of us and, and society. And then the third component is the role that um, government at all levels plays, okay? And so um, fell in love with that because it's tremendously complicated. But to your point, Mike, what's changed? And I think... Um, one of the things is I'll say, you know, medicine is an extremely normative industry. So I mean, it relies on norms, um, which is good. That's basically scientific um, process and analysis in order to make sure that the decisions that are, are changing are for the better. I mean, unlike many industries, although very similar, I'm sure, to, to the airline industry, the decisions you make um, have a life or death consequence, right? Um, however, you know, being a normative component, we just went through a global pandemic, right? So COVID-19, I think, has um, forever changed our healthcare systems in a really good way. Now, I think we're going to have a lot of still 
um, understanding where those pieces land um, because you know pandemic is ongoing and we're certainly looking to leadership internationally globally and locally um, to understand our way forward but three things I wanted to highlight in that change first is the technology revolution that we've experienced over the past 60 years has very rapidly been adopted into healthcare. And so i put it in context, if you haven't worked in healthcare um, under regulations here in the United States with HIPAA, probably one of the most compliant HIPAA communication devices that's still in play in most healthcare facilities is a fax machine. So transforming with, with information services is huge. So we've seen this very large emergence of telehealth. We've seen endorsement of telehealth uh, at the federal level, at the state level, um, which is tremendous um, because we can connect more people. So access is key. Um, the second thing that we've seen within uh, the change within COVID has been, I would say, a realization of how much, as I mentioned, um, medicine is an organizational structure. So typically when I say medicine to family members or things like that, people think, medical doctor, right? That's pretty much where it lands, is medical doctor. Um, no, no, entire team of physician's assistants, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, RAs, everybody that's in, uh, part of this is ensuring that the top level of care. And so I think that this put the entire organization under a huge microscope. We've seen huge changes within um, what's called the mid-level side. This is nursing, PA, etc have been absolutely elevated. Um, and I think that's good. Um, the third component that I think we've seen with healthcare in the United States change with COVID actually has more to do with the fact that people are now uh, mobile, right? So work from home has changed the population distribution in the United States completely, completely. Um, so it's very easy to move from different locales and, be, and live in new cities. It's very difficult to build new hospitals and medical facilities in these cities and locations. Um, so I think that one's more one that we just kind of keep on the radar long term. Very positive changes, number one, with telehealth. I think that's absolutely, um, we're going to see so many more services um, provided through telehealth. And now, because that's kind of the, the first step forward, connected devices like on the watches and this Internet of Things, are all being pushed in there because we want to drive accountability and outcomes, which is very important. Second, total recognition for the entire healthcare structure, uh, not just those at the top, but the entire structure that makes this happen. And then third, and something to keep an eye out for is, uh, I think a shift, a shift in, in where we think the top healthcare institutions reside in this country, and, and I would say globally. That's uh, very interesting. And it's also interesting you talked about the ballet of the government and everything because yes i did come from the airline industry as a manager there but i was also uh, president of a medical device company mm -hmm. for a couple of years and this ballet it's interesting that some of the forms of the faa and the fda were identical in that yeah. the only difference was that they said faa on one form and, and fda on another form so and i bring up that part of my career because uh, at that level, at the level I was at, I had to have a, uh, a macro view of things like sales forecasting, manufacturing forecasting, uh, 
where sales was going, making sure one didn't outrun the other. But in your position, I, must, I, I assume you must have a micro view. You have to have a micro view of what's going on and how that works. Has that changed since um, COVID or is, uh, do yeah. the principles still the same thing? Um, that's a great question. I think it has changed since COVID. So I say the, the underlying fundamentals of managing a commercial team or a sales team are very much the same. And so I think that has been tremendous. But as we look at addressing some of these new verticals within healthcare, so for example, telehealth. I mean, I think if you ask uh, most Americans 10 years ago about telehealth, you know, no one would say they'd used it. Um, today, I don't know the stat off the top of my head, but I believe it's you know, one in four um, visits is, is conducted via telehealth. So I think that provides an opportunity. And I think it's really important within the ballet to understand that data captured at these new digital points of care is very integral to industries um, position that we play in the ballet, as well as the clinical side, right? So clinical is capturing the, these points of data. And then certainly with, um, with a nod to HIPAA and the, the legal requirements, um, which, which we as industry don't really typically want to take part in, um, we want to get sanitized data back into industry. And, and here's why. Um, because industry, you know, as a medical device, I think medical device company is industry you are charged with educating the healthcare and clinical staff on the safe and efficacious use of your products. And so the more data that we can bring into that equation, make sure that we place the right education to the right clinician at the right level at the right time. And when we do that, it becomes, the clinician becomes so empowered to then take that forward and then what do they do? He or she will then practice and come to the right medical conclusion for the right patient at the right time. And so being a part of that continuum of care is really, really important. And as you can see, it's something that I very much enjoy um, because when all of those pieces are flowing, I mean, the outcomes are phenomenal. To hear, um, whether it be from a clinician or whether it be from a patient, how their life has changed um, because of a new technology or because of a new piece of education, it's transformative. It changes everything about what you do, um, whether no matter what side of the, the triad that you're on there in the ballet. Um, and I think that's why we all do it, which is neat for when we meet some, some of these uh, colleges of education and things like that. Um, I think that's our common bond, is that it doesn't matter whether you work for government or whether you work as a clinician or whether you work for industry, We've all been touched and seen that, and it's super special. Your, your passion for this is, is quite obvious, and I'm thinking back to the medical device days mm -hmm. and the things that we probably don't have time to get deep into, but one of the things that, that I remember was once your device or your product crosses an international boundary, mm -hmm. the amount of knowledge you have to have and you have to bring to bear on that to do this the right way is incredible and if you a, a single misstep can cost you a lot of money yeah and, and and that's part of the fun right so when we talk about the the business and components 23 countries you had to do this with 23 and, and countries. more and more yeah i had maybe five yeah so and it, so it's fun it, it varies from extremely low risk 
right? Where I think there's 100% accountability on you know you're doing the right thing to, uh, to very invasive. And by invasive, I mean the, the regulations that you need to comply with. Um, the nice thing is I think that from every government that you deal with internationally, the intent is the same. And the intent is that they want to make sure that products that are sold to their population um, are safe and efficacious. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, there's a number of complications in there. And, and that, I think that's why I've been really excited both domestically and internationally is also in the medical side of a commercial team is ingrained. Uh, I think one of the, the college components that I just absolutely endured, which is this is real time international supply chain or value chain logistics. And so knowing um, how to, which levers to pull and how to pull them in order to get through a very complicated network, um, it, it's invigorating um, because it's not easy. And if it were easy, then we'd be a medical device, uh, you know, innovator on every corner and there's not, so. Exactly. So we talked about change uh, and that's a great segue into one of the last things uh, that we'll talk about. And it's something that I work with clients about and that's change management. And um, I know that you have worked with change. You have change going in your career right now. And I want to find out what's next in a moment sure. for sure. Dan Wagner. But um, as we talk about change management, part of that has to be also attracting and retaining people in mm -hmm. the new normal. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but that seems to be the buzzword of the day. So I'll use it. But uh, you want to speak about that change? management? Sure, sure. Yeah, change management is a, a tough topic. Right. And I, and I don't mean it's tough like it's not possible to be solved. I actually mean that um, it's tough because there's so many perspectives. Right. And so just to, to shrink it down, I'm going to speak to this from the perspective of a leader or manager going through change management. And I'll actually I'll, I'll borrow from the experience of just the past couple of months. So I recently took a new role to lead a new commercial organization and the approach that I took. And I think it's a lot better than talking from opinion. I'll just tell you point blank, this is the approach that, that I took. And it's approach that I vetted over numerous other implementations. And that was first and foremost, I had to learn and be shoulder to shoulder with the team first. Um, titles don't dictate the level of trust. You earn trust. And so I think first and foremost, you need to take time to observe, to document, to look at problems within the organization objectively. So that means when we talk about a problem, we talk about the problem. We don't talk about the person. Um, we wanna codify those ideas. And by that, what I love is I use this principle of GPS. So my perspective on solving a problem is like a GPS device connecting to a single satellite. Congratulations, you have a single connection. We know which hemisphere of the earth you're on, right? So my own perspective alone is not worth a whole lot. Then I want to bounce it off a trusted resource, two connections. All right, now my specificity of data is better. I might know that we're in the state of Texas, right? When I connect to three devices with three perspectives, very similar to GPS, now my specificity and accuracy is one meter. There's a much higher probability that I actually understand the problem at hand instead of relying on my own devices. So first, indoctrinate. That's the summary of what I would say there is. I have to indoctrinate myself, earn the trust of the team. Second is after we've indoctrinated, you codify, here are the issues, here's the gap analysis that we need to go through. 
and make sure that we have the team's buy-in. Every single person in the organization, from the person who unlocks the door in the morning um, to the person who calls to order the board meeting, all of those people have to be contributors. So we want to make sure that we've got their support and that they're enrolled on this journey. Third, and this is where I'll leave it, change management can go on indefinitely, but I think this is the most critical component. The third component is within that gap analysis plan to target and know how to objectively measure the early wins. If you're not able to put those early wins up on the board, your change management, at least from my experience, your change management experience will stall very quickly. And so knowing those, um, those early wins and measuring them objectively so that the entire organization gets the W, not necessarily a person or a perspective, uh, that's really, really important. So it's kind of neat from there, you know, there's a number of different uh, mechanisms to look at it from like Kaizen protocols and everything else, but I see change management is one of those circular mechanisms. It's progress, not perfection. And so if you're on that path towards progress, um, then you win. If you're on the path towards perfection, I wish you luck. I've never seen someone attain it. <laughs> you, uh, you talk about satellites. And again, I can yeah. see the passion you have uh, for this, where you get to three satellites and you get to one meter. There are 54 geosynchronous satellites that orbit the Earth at all the time. And I got a feeling you're the guy that looks for as many of those 54 connections as you can to get all the data that you can. So that's, that's, Absolutely. that's fascinating. It really is to hear you uh, explain that. I've said this before about uh, another friend of mine, but I got a feeling you're the guy that could explain cryptocurrency to me and make me understand Oh, <laughs> I'm flattered, but uh, even that, look, you do what you do best and you trade amongst the rest. Um, yeah, I'm very flattered, but I appreciate it. What's your philosophy on people, hiring people? What do you look for? People, oh, so man, these are the deep questions. Um, I think first and foremost, um, people really are good at heart. And I think people tend to reflect back to you um, the way that you treat them. So first and foremost, when I look at people in the interview process or even just from a resume, is you gotta come in with an open mind and you have to think about uh, I like to think about um, the person in a day-to-day. -day. So if I'm going to take them out to breakfast in the morning, we both come to the office and we're going to breakfast in the morning. What does that look like? And come in with that open mind because people will always surprise you if you let them. What I've actually seen, and, and I guess kind of one of the themes here is you always have to take it and turn it, look from the other side of the street is be conscientious of the biases that you bring into the interview room or that you bring to reading the resume. Um, I've been guilty of them. You know, I've been I'm in a bad mood today and I'm going to go through the resume file. Probably not going to get a lot of winners out of that. Probably a lot of winners in there, but I've got my blinders on. So I like to look at my side of the street um, as I look at people in the hiring process and check my intentions as I come into the door, because um, that's all I can affect. I can't affect them. But if I can, if I can hold myself in check and my accountability, then I've always been surprised at what people will show for you. And then you start to nurture that. And like we talked about mentor that talent, it just goes on. And I'll give you one aside. I had this great 
great opportunity where I was at a position posted and uh, this candidate, unbeknownst to me, had been coming in every day dressed in a suit and sitting in our lobby. And he did this for about a week, maybe a week and a half. Well, it just so happened that I got to the office early every day, so I walked past the receptionist. And so she knew who I was. So finally, he, she said, look, I know this Dan guy that you're trying to meet. Let me just call him. Well, I met with this guy and he had been filtered out of the human resources channel. Um, there were certain qualifications I was asking for that he did not have, but he had this initiative and drive that he showed up for a week and a half. Probably one of the best hires that I'd ever had. He now has more than enough qualifications to qualify for almost any job that we had in that team and all done based on personal initiative and attitude. And so I'll, I'll end with that, which is that attitude on the topic of hiring and selection. I, we can educate on a lot of things, but attitude is one of those components that you really can't teach somebody how to do. So I look for attitude first and foremost. That's fantastic. And I agree with everything you said on that. Um, the HR filters can cut a lot of people out. Sure. Now my HR friends, I'm sorry to say that. You're, you're gonna email me about this, but it's true. And um, they're there for a reason and they serve a, a purpose. But when I interviewed, I got to ask one warm up question. Okay. And I've carried that forward to today. And when I work with people on building their teams and how should they build their teams, I relate this story to them. I ask a warm up question. So. I always ask and gave the opportunity to tell me something that's not on your resume, but you would be really proud if I knew it. And some people would say maybe a half a sentence and then go right back to their resume. And other people's face would immediately light up when you ask them that question. And the best hire that I ever made came from that question. I went through the rest of the process and did it fairly and did it the way HR wanted me to. but. He told about it. I'm not going to tell the whole story because it would identify who he was, but he told about a difficult childhood, how a family helped him and how it made him so passionate about that, that he mentored other people in his situation, starting in junior high school through college. And he does it today. And that's the kind of person that's what I call not just hiring a person. You hire the right person and then you have to get them to the right position. And that might involve maybe putting them in a couple of different positions. But anyway, that's uh, that's a fantastic yeah. answer. And I'll add for, for the HR folks out there, I don't think that we're, we're looking to unfairly criticize. All we're saying is that, I'll, I'll speak for myself, all I'm saying is that the, a system is a system. So what I would ask and what we did from that example is that I went and collaborated with my counterparts in human resources to make sure that we had checks and balances for how the system was performing. So I think if that is the opportunity from that tidbit, if you're in human resources, you know, and Mike's had the same experience and you have to have that feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We I always had somebody from HR with me when I, when I interviewed and, uh, uh, Thank you for uh, pointing out that we don't mean to criticize you. And uh, yeah. I'll say what the senator meant to say was that you're a valuable <laughs> partner. And, uh, and uh, I always uh, enjoyed, uh, you know, working with them. But also having that leeway to just ask that warm up question and relax the person. I think I got some of the, the best hires that I, that I got that way. Um, so this is bringing us down to where we're getting close to wrapping up. 
And I'd like to hear what's next for Dan Wagner. Yeah, so what's next, I'm, I'm in the middle of, um, which is that um, very fortunate that this year I was asked by the team at Spark Biomedical uh, to come on and lead their commercial and sales operations. And so I'm now with Spark Biomedical, which has built a platform. And part of that platform today is an FDA cleared, non-addictive, non-drug medical device that helps to manage opioid withdrawal symptoms. And so when we talk about changes in healthcare, um, this is an opportunity to be extremely transformative um, because some of the barriers for whether it be substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, um, barriers like fear and barriers like societal access to these technologies have really kept millions of Americans and I'll say millions of global citizens uh, in the dark. And so we have an opportunity now with uh, new IT infrastructure, new medical devices like Spark Biomedical's Sparrow device um, to provide therapy in a brand new way. And talk about transform transformative care. When you can take someone in the throes of uh, substance use disorder and open the door to recovery for them, that is one of the most impactful components because these people are, um, you know, substance use disorder does not discriminate. These people are our leaders in our government, within our communities, within our hospitals, uh, within our companies, within our schools. And so to give them a second chance at life and recovery, um, it's just been one of the most uh, personally impactful journeys that I've ever embarked on. So I'm very happy to be a part of the Spark Biomedical team. And I look forward, if we have the opportunity to speak again in the future, to update you about our progress, uh, not only with this, but the entire uh, platform that we're bringing uh, into the recovery space and into medicine uh, writ large. I think we'll have that opportunity. Cool. So as we wrap this up, uh, why don't you take 30 seconds, uh, a minute, whatever it takes you to do it, look into that camera, tell someone who might want to contact your company, the website, uh, anything you'd want to highlight, who to contact, or if it was you, or if they wanted more information, who to, who to contact about the company. Absolutely. Um, if any of this information has been relevant to you today, feel free to reach out to Spark Biomedical. We're available at www.sparkbiomedical.com. On our website, you'll find a great contact page um, if you're a clinician, patient, caregiver, advocate, there are all different avenues there where you can schedule even consultations uh, with a member of our team or a member um, of our uh, broader clinical base where you can receive more information about our technologies and platform. So thank you. Dan, thank you. Thank you very much. This has been a fascinating interview. The opioid component of this is so important that I don't feel like we had enough time to expand on this. Sure. Uh, it's uh, worthy of another conversation. Would you come back and join me for a future interview and uh, talk more about this? And maybe if you want to bring someone from your company that we can do that also. It would be my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for, we'll put the information up that he just gave you on the screen. Uh, thank you very much for watching today. I want to thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something of value to help with the challenges you face as a leader. Please feel free to share this show with your friends on social media. And don't forget to visit my website, 
thegrowthfacilitator.com. And while you're there, book a free call with me. We'll see you next time on Cornerstone.